This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked UX Research Manager Reggie Murphy what he's learned about design since working at Facebook. I mean, there's a lot of nuance that's involved with trying to figure out how a workflow can work for you know someone that's using a platform. So it, it takes a lot of um, deep understanding of what uh, the consumer is doing, what their mental model is, and trying to figure out exactly what they need so that you can design against that need. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, HCSC Blue Cross Blue Shield is looking for the following positions in Chicago. Technology Application Architect, Senior Program Manager, Assistant IT Product Manager, Business Analyst, and Senior XP Programmer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash job to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts, and when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, MailChimp, and SiteGround. Glitch is a friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. If your New Year's resolution is to learn how to code, then look no further. Glitch provides you with a platform to easily start creating anything from a simple website to a Slack bot. You can just drop your code in. It runs automatically. We just kicked off a series last week on learning how to code that walked you through the basics of HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and Node by building your own New Year's resolution app. And this week, it's all about bots. So go check it out and get started today at glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up now for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. It's a new year, which means it's a great time to start working on your email marketing efforts. Let MailChimp's pre-built marketing automation help you out there. Automations are like a second brain for your business. I mean, who doesn't want that after the holidays? And they can easily do the heavy lifting for your email marketing efforts so you can focus on what's really important, your business. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. You need cloud hosting or a dedicated server? SiteGround's got you covered. Hosting WordPress, Drupal, Magento, or Joomla? They can handle that too. And with award-winning customer support and amazing uptime, you don't have to worry about hosting issues at all. 
get started today by visiting SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking to Audrey Bennett, design scholar and associate professor of graphics for the Department of Communication and Media at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Professor Audrey Bennett. I am a professor of graphics in the Department of Communication and Media at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, um, which is located in Troy, New York, which is upstate New York, about two and a half hours from New York City and three hours from um, Boston. RPI is is one of the, it's actually the oldest technological universities. It's an engineering kind of based school. And I teach graphic design courses, cross-cultural communication, um, both practice courses and theoretical courses. So as graduate program director, I am um, teaching a graduate seminar next term that's going to focus on semiotics and field work. So I do a lot of human subjects research projects with the students. Um, some of it integrates research I'm doing and some of it does not. You know, it, it, it comes from their own imagination. Um, but yeah, so I do teaching and research primarily and service to my profession and that, you know, characterizes what I do as a design scholar. It's interesting that a college that's known for tech, like you just said, has a graphic design program. Has that always been the case? That's a really good question. So I am actually in a multidisciplinary program in communication and media. Um, and we, because it's a multidisciplinary program, we don't have a program that's focused specifically on graphic design. But our undergraduate program in both communication and EMAC, which stands for electronic media um, communication, art and communication, pardon me, <laughs> EMAC, um, it includes a concentration in graphic design and then it includes courses in graphic design. So it's not necessarily a graphic design program that's accredited by NASAD but it um, does include graphic design courses. And I've been here for 20 years. And oh, wow. Around the time that I arrived um, in 1997, they were just beginning the EMAC program. And so it hadn't really, you know, even gotten started yet. So it's been around for a while. And for the entire time I've been here, we have been offering, you know, a lot of courses in graphic design. How have you seen the design program change in 20 years? I just think about how much tech itself has has grown and become integrated with design. In your perspective, how have you seen things change? The program, or do you mean graphic design in general? Uh, We'll stay with the program. Um, I would say that the program started out as being more practice-based and applied. And it was really about training non design students, primarily engineering students, students who have, and science, students from the sciences who had no background in the arts, training them to do graphic design. So it was really about um, teaching them, 
you know, the technical skills that they need to create um, pretty pictures. And to be honest with you, I think the program definitely evolved and grew and changed as my identity as a design scholar changed. So as I moved more towards research, that actually started getting um, integrated into my curriculum. So how I taught a very um, intuitive-based design process when I first started teaching at RPI that transformed into a now research-based process that I take students to through. Um, I would say that, you know, teaching graphic design students um, how to do research has been quite challenging. So it's really been trial and error. When I first started integrating it, I tell them um, that they were doing research, but they didn't want to do research. They wanted to make pretty pictures. They just wanted to do practical things. But now I've integrated it in such a way that they don't even realize they're doing research. You know, I don't even have to say it. I present it as a problem-solving process and sort of tell them that, you know, as designers, we have an obligation to address problems in the world. And this is how, you know, you need to go through this process in order to do that. In terms of the students, you know, RPI is also changed in regard to the kinds of students that are coming to RPI. For one thing, um, when I first started, I think we were more of a service department, really service, providing service, you could say, to engineering students, science students, and many of our majors were coming from engineering and science students who were unable to do well in those majors and wanted, you know, to be honest, an easier major. So they came over to the humanities. So we were really serving um, the engineering school. And then with the growth of the EMAC program, we started becoming more of a destination program. You know, people or students, high school students were really coming to RPI to study EMAC and not necessarily engineering, you know, and then jumping over to EMAC. So that the students have evolved. They started with no background or experience in the arts and many of them coming now, you know, have taken graphic design courses in high school. They know the um, industry standard applications and this is what they want to do. And they understand the role that it plays within communication and media. So it's still an interdisciplinary learning environment, but they want to study graphic design within this interdisciplinary environment. So I think that kind of describes how we've evolved. You know, the students have evolved and our curriculum definitely has evolved. Um, and again, the curriculum evolving is closely aligned to my development as a design scholar and a researcher. Let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, we've, we've had design educators on the show before. So I'm interested to know, how did you really get started with all of this? How did you end up coming into being a design scholar and how did that lead you to RPI? Um, when I arrived at RPI, I was definitely a graphic artist, more of a focus in the design arts um, because I was coming out of a graphic design program, a graduate program and really geared towards practice. Um, but 
my position here at RPI is within a, well, RPI is a research institution. And so we're required to really do research and to develop scholarship um, that's based on research to bring in, to write grants and bring in money, you know, to do research projects. So that was an entirely new kind of framework for me um, that involved a lot of writing, you know, to get tenure. I was on the tenure track and at RPI to get tenure, you need to have a certain number of publications. So it was like, okay, well, how, what do I have to write about, you know, to get publication? So that's really where it started, trying to get tenure and trying to satisfy the requirements to get tenure, which entailed writing books and articles. Um, actually, you know, if you have an arts background, you can also um, submit juried exhibitions, any kind of juried artwork wanted to, to, and it can count, you know, towards your tenure. But for me, I was very much interested in research and what that entailed, because it certainly wasn't something that was discussed uh, in my graduate um, graphic design program. So immediately I started a collaboration with a sociologist who was looking at robots um, and artificial intelligence, you know, he brought me an article, actually a magazine, and on the front cover of the ma magazine was a robot bust um, that comprised of only the head of the robot, and the eyes were blue, and the lips were, you know, bright red. And this robot called Kismet was being developed at MIT, and he asked me, well, what is wrong with this? You know, and immediately I said the blue eyes. Right? <laughs> it certainly doesn't reflect my culture. And I must say, I think that that marked the beginning of my, um, you know, this research persona that I've sort of developed because I started seeing, you know, how um, how culture was being misrepresented through technology and the design of technology, how cultures were being excluded from, you know, um, design resources, design innovation, etc. And I started wondering, well, how could I change the way that robots are designed? And as a graphic designer, what kind of knowledge and experience do I bring to it? And so I met someone else, um, Ron Eglash, who was doing um, work on African fractals. And he was looking at how... Um, there's like high math, right, um, in African art, African architecture, spatial designs, etc. And, you know, I was fascinated with this idea that you could actually learn math and computing from cornrow braiding, from um, breakdancing, and things like that. And so he was interested in working with me because I'm a graphic designer in terms of developing a website that would be able to provide access to underrepresented students to give them access to a software where they could render simulations of cultural, you know, designs um, and learn math and computing 
through that process. And I've been working on that research project for, you know, over a decade now, maybe about 15 years. Um, another problem that I've been, that I've addressed in the past is HIV. And that came about because in one of the departments here, we'd recruited a doctoral student from, I think it is Kenya. And so immediately we saw an opportunity to do some research maybe, and we applied for an internal grant to get some seed money, you know, to tackle, you know, any kind of major problem in Kenya. And at that time it was HIV and the spread, spreading of HIV. And she was from Kenya and she was interested in working with us. So we were able to secure money to do a virtual design kind of studio where we would um, collaboratively design in a human-centered way um, campaigns to address HIV, you know, the spread of HIV in Kenya. And that money enabled her to go back to Kenya for about two weeks in the in the summer and to actually supervise this participatory design process that we participated in using remote communication technologies. So this is a kind of, you know, research I've been doing that relates to graphic design. Um, and I think that is how I became a design scholar. So as I'm doing these research projects and asking these questions and answering them with evidence, you know, I started writing and that became the content, you could say, for my papers that I was disseminating, that I had to disseminate to journals, etc. Um, and before you knew it, you know, I had just a serious collection of papers and publications. And I said, wow, I guess I am a design scholar now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to trivialize it. It certainly, I did it with intent because I knew that research was not very common in graphic design, you know, and I knew that um, design educators who were situated at research institutions were being asked to do research, but we weren't necessarily getting that training in the graduate programs that we were coming from. And even the work experience, the client-based kind of work experience that we were getting. So I put to, and I started doing some research, you know, to see if research had already been done, you know, before in our discipline and came upon some interesting work um, by Ella Lizitsky, I believe, at the Bauhaus, you know, and I found tons of art articles by other designers that were working at other institutions who we're sort of confronting this idea of research. So I put it all together in an anthology and got some new work from, you know, contemporary designers and approached Princeton Ar Architectural Press to publish it. And they did. It's called Design Studies, Theory and Research in Graphic Design. Um, and the introduction to that book is The Rise of Research in Graphic Design. Um, because I felt like I needed to lay the foundation for my work because no one was really talking about research and graphic design at that time, except for maybe Brenda Laurel and Paul Nini. Um, he had an article come out just when Design Studies was published. 
And so it really was not something that was being discussed um, in the discipline. And from there, it was just writing one article after the next, because at this research institution, it's absolutely required that you have numerous publications of your work and you're getting making impact in the world, right? In the academic world. So that's how I became a design scholar, if that's clear (laughs) at all. No, that sounds like it's been quite a journey. Yeah, it really has been. It's been a little isolating as well. Um, How so? Well, for one, in terms, culturally, it's isolating because I am, I'm the only, I was the first black female faculty member here at RPI. Um, And I think now we have about five. Mm -hmm. And then I do not have a PhD. So I didn't really know anyone that I went to school with, anyone who was really dealing with the same issues I was dealing with, being surrounded by doctoral scholars and being asked to do research instead of practice. And it was just all so confusing. And so, you know, for my first sabbatical, I decided I'd go to Canada and talk to Jorge Frascara because I'd read all his work. And I was like, this is exactly, you know, what I'm doing. I want to know more about what he's doing. This is graphic design research. So I went out to Canada and met with him. And, you know, it was wonderful because he became in some way like a mentor of sorts, you know, and he gave me all of these tips and, you know, all this material and really tried to integrate me into his network. And I thought that was very, very helpful. So after I met Jorge, I think things got a little better, you know, but it's been a very difficult difficult journey, I think. And, you know, a lot of times you're questioning, why am I doing this? This is not what I was trained to do. But right now, I feel I'm firmly rooted in just this belief and commitment to the use of design to address social issues in society. Um, Certainly something that the first things first manifesto, you know, tried to plant. That's a seed that they planted in the discipline, but probably more so from a corporate design perspective, you know, and I think that that same kind of social responsibility can be applied through a research-oriented process where, you know, I'm more of an author of the content that I develop, of the problem that I wish to explore, and I have to be the one to get the funding, you know, to to conduct this research and implement, you know, whatever findings that we develop in the process. Have you found that it's improved for you over the years? It certainly has. I think with my becoming, I've learned so much in the process. It's been really, really challenging and hard. Um. But where I am now, I feel really, really great about what I'm doing. I know who I am and what kind of work I'm interested in doing. And the path has been paved, you know, for this kind of work. I think the discipline is be becoming aware of it and the importance of it. Um, so, yes, it has gotten a lot easier. And, you know, conferences like Black in Design absolutely helps you know, to connect me to other um, 
folks from my own culture that are just doing extraordinary work in design. I think that's also very important and good to see um, and participate in as well. So there's a lot more going on right now. I was actually a CAA professional development fellow right around 1997, and I really gravitated away from that organization because I just didn't feel that they were diverse enough, you know, culturally or intellectually. Um, and some 20 years later, I'm now on a their inaugural committee on design, and we're confronting some of those feelings that I had some 20 years ago that they are finally beginning to see that graphic design, you know, needs its own representation, right? And they're also seeing that they're not as diverse as they need to be. And so, you know, I, I think that in time, that or organization will change. And hopefully, more of those design organizations will begin to provide the kind of support that young faculty members need so that they don't have to have that rough, rough, or, you know, experience that rough path that I had to take to where I am right now. You know, as you're mentioning this, it's reminding me of two conversations I've had on the show. Uh, one was with Ann H. Berry back in early 2017, and one back in 2015 with Tamika D. Williams, who's a design mm -hmm. professor at Alabama A&M University. Uh, Tamika was mentioning that same feeling you were talking about of being like the only one in the faculty. Right. And I think she mentioned this as well. And a lot of the things that Tamika had mentioned were around student issues, you know, in terms of making sure they were really interested. And even, you know, the eccentricities yeah. of teaching at an HBCU, which, you know, might not be as well funded as a research institute in that department. Uh, one thing you mentioned earlier is that you really got into this by starting to write. And, you know, one thing that I tell a lot of designers who email the show and ask how they can get their name out there, I tell them that they need to write more. Yes. You know, there is there is such a, a dearth of black design voices out there. You should be getting out there on Medium or WordPress or something and just, you know, start writing. Get on a schedule. Start putting your thoughts out there, you know, because we're not being represented yeah. in that way. And and like you said, you know, the more that you've done it, the more you've ended up, you know, growing into this and becoming a design scholar. Exactly. Exactly. I think writing is crucial. It is absolutely important and certainly something that I want my students to be able to do, to realize that you're going to have to argue, you know, your point. And it's needed really to advance your career. I've done so much writing. I'm doing so much writing now. And it's just amazing how much writing is involved in what I do. But I've always loved writing as well. Um, when I was in graduate school, we were allowed to take courses, you know, outside of graphic design. And the courses I took that I really enjoyed were my writing courses. So, you know, everything has sort of come together quite nicely for me. Um, but to go back to what you mentioned about the students, um, you know, when I teaching at RPI has been rough in terms of students as well. And really, my recent kind of thrust towards cross-cultural communication was just something that I saw missing in my students' curriculum here. And, 
you know, when we have discussions, I was really horrified by some of the things that were coming out of their mouths. So I felt, wow, they really need to learn about culture. They need to learn about the people that they are designing for. And through that desire to train them in that regard, I came up with a course called Cross-Cultural Design, which is has a lot more reading, you know, than your typical graphic design course should, I think. And it's reading outside of the discipline um, about different cultures, Latino culture, Black culture, all different types of culture to help them to understand, you know, the the very diverse society that they live in. Um, and I think it went over really well. You know, students here at RPI have a lot of opinions and they like to they like to talk about what's happening in the world. So it, it's a wonderful class. And then I also have them write a book, you know, on a topic in culture of their choice. And then they have to design the book. So it's really bringing together writing, graphic design, research, you know, and cross-cultural literacy that has really amounted to some really interesting projects. You know, I feel like something like that needs to be in every design curriculum. Absolutely. I'll have students that will email me from some of the top design schools like SVA or MICA, et cetera. And they usually stumble mm-hmm. across the show and they tell me they're glad they found it, which is great. And I always ask them if they're learning anything about designers of color, like in their classes and everything. And the answer is always no. Uh, they say that they'll bring it up with their faculty and the faculty might shoot them down. Yeah. And and to them, it feels like they're not able to find or learn things about design that relate yeah. to their culture specifically. Uh, it reminds me of an essay from the late Sylvia Harris. Uh, it's in an anthology by Stephen Heller called mm-hmm. The Education of a Graphic Designer. And in there, she talks about how black design students are learning more out of imitation rather than innovation. You know, they're they're learning the Eurocentric right. design principles and standards. But anything outside of that is either taught of as being foreign or weird or mm-hmm. honestly not even being taught at all. Mm-hmm. You know, the Eurocentric design principles are then seen as the default and so the designs that they end up creating from that don't reflect their culture, but rather it's reflecting what they've learned by imitating something else. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if this is the same essay that we're talking about, but Sylvia Harris also wrote that wonderful essay called The Black Aesthetic. Yeah, it's the same one. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, it's the same thing. So I thought it was profoundly important. Um, there's another design educator doing that as well. And is it, uh, what's her last name? And Barry, I believe she's doing um, a lot of work on diversifying graphic design curriculum. But I think you're right. I think we really have to look at, and that's probably something the, NAS- the NASAD, N-A-S-A-D, um, organization needs to look at how are you diversifying graphic design education? I think that's where it needs to start and trickle down to all of those, um, you know, the top graphic design programs in the country. One thing that I'm curious about, and it's also stemming uh, from the same piece, uh, it's this notion of a black design aesthetic. Throughout your research, have you found anything mm-hmm. that might support that thought of a, of a unified black design aesthetic? Absolutely. It's all you know, part of um, 
the work that I'm doing. Um, if you go to academia.edu, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later, but there I've written, I have posted a number of articles about, you know, where this black aesthetic could actually come from. But in this paper, I was really looking at fractals in spatial design, you know, architectural design in Africa, and really trying to show the migration of those ideas actually to the Bauhaus and almost arguing how, you know, the design aesthetic of the Bauhaus is rooted in African design. So there is a paper, Fractals in Global Africa is a paper that um, introduces a special issue that I edited um, for Critical Interventions, a journal in 2012. And my article titled Follow the Golden Ratio from Africa to the Bauhaus for a Cross-Cultural Aesthetic for Images. So that's where I get into really talking about where this black aesthetic can come from. And it's not just a black aesthetic, but it's a cross-cultural aesthetic that you know, through use of the golden ratio, you're actually, um, that, that principle or that theory applied to design yields an aesthetic that's multicultural because it comes from Africa and was in use in the Bauhaus. So it's an interesting article that I recommend. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. You know, I'm really interested in that, uh, because it seems to be a perennial conversation about what that means, especially when we see what passes as current design trends like like minimalism slash brutalism, kind of putting it generally, uh, or material design from Google, for example. And usually when you see something that is supposed to perhaps uh, represent an African-American or black design aesthetic, it always tends to be kind of grossly stereotypical. So I really want to check that paper out and learn some more about that. Yeah, that sounds great. I wrote another one called Towards an Autochthonic Black Aesthetic and Graphic Design Pedagogy that's really based on this experience I had in grad school where I was looking at um, African sculpture and not really even knowing the full potential of it, right? Um, until I came to RPI and learned, you know, what the African sculpture was actually saying and what it meant and the various levels of meaning that could come out of it. And it was through my collaboration with Ron Eglash and through his book, African Fractals, that I was able to understand the phenomenon, you know, that I was working with in grad school. Um, and I was not getting the kind of advice, right, from my um, advisors at that time because they knew nothing about African art, right? And nothing about, um, I mean, their idea of the Bauhaus is not something that they would even associate with African culture, right? They don't really know the history of design. Um, so that article as well is one that I recommend. I'm interested to know some of your current areas of research. Uh, we met back in October at Black and Design um, at Harvard, and they largely talked about designing spaces and building coalitions. Does any of your research play into those topics? That is a very interesting question. So while I was there, I got this idea that, 
you know, there was a time when I've gotten into um, RISD for landscape architecture. And I decided not to go to RISD, but I thought, wow, had I done that, this is definitely something that I might be doing, you know, or I could have done with this degree. But I chose graphic design and I chose to go elsewhere. Um, so the work, it was deeply inspiring to me. I thought that there was some really interesting work going on. Um, my focus is really on transformative images and I want to really situate my expertise and my interest right there at images and images can take form, you know, as photographs, it could be a designed kind of composition. Um, it certainly could be an architectural space. It could be a building. Um, so I'm always interested in, you know, images, you know, and when I use images, obviously, I'm talking about something much broader, like an image, something that we see and extract meaning from can be a lot of different things. A two dimensional, you know, plane or composition is something that's three dimensional. So I definitely think that it fits within, you know, my research interest. Um, but it didn't seem to be really a conference about starting collaborations, definitely networking. Um, but it, it seemed in some ways one way, like there was a lot of absolutely phenomenal work going on, you know, by black scholars all around the country. Um, but I didn't really get a complete sense that this conference was about, okay, here is an idea. Let's figure out how we can come together and address it. So the networking opportunities are there, but I didn't get a sense that there was an opportunity to collaborate, which is interesting. That's not a criticism of the conference. I just think it's a framing of it. But I saw some really outstanding work being done. And I was really impressed with the work um, and the presentations, et cetera. I think that some of the problems that they address, mental illness sort of came to the forefront for me because I think that is a problem that the black community in the U.S. is dealing with. And I think we need more solutions because I don't think it's getting the amount of resources it needs and the attention it needs. And so I was glad to see that there was that designer at the beginning who was really trying to address mental illness because it's something that he experienced in his family. And I found that very touching. And I think more work needs to be done um, with that as well, um, you know, along with other um, issues as well. But mental illness is one that seldom gets any attention and only negative attention, unfortunately. I, I agree. That is true. Uh, when you talk about these transformative images, can you talk about some ways that these images can be used to address any sort of societal problems or anything like that? Um, so transformative images, you know, are maybe some of the images that I'm working with now to address injustices in education. So using cornrow hairstyles, you know, to teach um, transformational geometry. That would be an example of a transformative image because many underrepresented students do not realize that there's math involved in cornrow braiding, right? That you can actually learn from it. 
So those that's what I mean by transformative image. Even an image, you know, that addresses HIV or AIDS and makes someone use protection, you know, when they're having sex, as opposed to not using it and preventing the contraction of that virus, right? So that's a transformative image. But a transformative image is also, when I use it, I mean to imply that it's one that is derived from a human-centered design process. So it's coming from a process that um, is collaborative with the users that, you know, the audience or the target community that um, is going to actually use that image, right? So you their input in its design. It's not coming from just a graphic designer who's thinking intuitively about how it should be designed to, you know, meet the needs of this audience. You're actually working with them. You're in collaboration with them in the creation of that image. And that is truly what makes it transformative. Um, transformative images, when I use it, I mean to say that these images, you know, tend to address very serious problems in society, that they can save lives, you know. Um, and because of that, they really need to be designed in a participatory way, in a human-centered way, um, in a research-oriented way, um, so that there is no or little limited chance that meaning will not be transmitted clearly because it's a life threatening problem that we're dealing with, right? And we really need to make sure that those images are going to communicate clearly um, in such a way that cognitive and behavioral changes come about that leads to good change, if that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. I see what you're talking about. One of the areas of your research I learned about while doing my research uh, for this interview was around interactive aesthetics. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So interactive aesthetics definitely relates to my transformative images um, research, you know, platform in that I believe that we're living in a multicultural society and all images just will not communicate clearly. And one way to do that is through interactive aesthetics, um, allowing the audience to engage you know, in a multi-sensory way with the image. For example, I worked on the, the HIV project in Kenya, and we created this campaign that's accessible via the website where you can actually go on and design, you know, a promotional HIV um, and AIDS prevention poster that's going to be targeted to the community that you're in, right? So that, um, you know, we are cognizant of cultural difference and realize that aesthetics are based on, you know, your choice of aesthetics is really going to be based on the culture of the people who are supposed to read the image um, and extract meaning. Um, any way that you can engage someone in a visual experience, I believe, using technology enhances the communication process. And right now I'm doing some research on language learning, for instance, and immersive environments um, and the use of cognitive you know, agents that can read multi-sensory kind of um, communication in a space 
and um, help, you know, the person, the human to get from point A to point B to actually, you know, get meaning from the experience. Um, so that's all very interesting. So that's, you know, where we're headed with interactive aesthetics. Interactive aesthetics, I think also, when it was first introduced to the discipline, was really about using communication technologies to engage people in a virtual design experience, um, people who were remotely located. And the first articulation of this theory was really about client-based work, right? Still meeting the needs of society and a targeted community, but trying to engage people, let's say, in the third world. <laughs> you know, if you don't have the money to travel out there to work with them face-to-face, -face, then could we set up a virtual space where we could come together and solve problems? So that was another kind of premise, you could say, to interactive aesthetics. Let's switch gears here. Uh, we've talked a lot about your work and your research now, uh, but what was the big aha moment for you when you decided that design was something you wanted to pursue for a living? Oh, that's another interesting question. Hmm. So that would have to go back to college. Um, so I was really on the path to being a lawyer. I was a pre-law student when I was in college at Dartmouth. And I think I was trying to major in economics and things like that. And I took a drawing class um, with Professor Ben Moss at, in the studio art department at Dartmouth and absolutely loved it. And that was the first time that I realized, wow, my hobby, you know, drawing can actually be an intellectual exploration. That was the moment right when I realized that I could actually do this as a profession. Now, interesting, interestingly, I decided to continue to take art courses. I took architecture courses, and my professor said, "No, you do not go to grad school for art," <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they were very concerned about my making a living after I graduated. Um, so they said only, they advised me to only go to grad school for graphic design or architecture, which is why I was deferred at RISD for a year in landscape architecture, which I really didn't know a lot about, um, and graphic design at Yale. And while I was deferred, I was working as a paralegal in New York City. Um, because I wasn't quite sure if I was, you know, ready to jump into an, an art career. But after working in the law firm for a year, I really did not enjoy that experience. <laughs> and I thought, I really want to spend my time, you know, my future um, doing something that I love. And I work as hard at it as I need to in order to make a living from it. Right. So I decided I was not going to continue to law school. And instead, I went to art school and I went to into a graphic design program at Yale. Now, I must say that my mom was not pleased with my decision. <laughs> <laughs> my family was not pleased, but I was determined to make this work. I just wanted to 
have a life that, where I'm doing something I enjoyed, right? And I met many attorneys at the law firm who were just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to leave in a few years and do what I really want to do after I save money. So many of the lawyers that I met were in it for the money. They were not happy. They were really not happy with their careers. And I didn't want that for myself. And that's why I switched. And I never looked back. And I never looked back. That is right. Uh, I, I had Omari Souza on the show a few months ago. He's a, a design researcher. And it's interesting because what he mentioned around why black students get into design is, is kind of very similar to what you said. Interestingly enough, there are people who wanted to take, uh, you know, more low risk slash high payout careers. You know, like a lawyer or a doctor or something, but they weren't happy with it. And now because of how design and technology are so ubiquitous, uh, they're making more money and they're happier now with, with what they're doing. But there still seems to be this disconnect between that and like the parental That's acceptance right. of design as a viable career path. Yeah. And it still goes on because we are challenged ourselves here, you know, at RPI in terms of recruiting students and explaining to their parents that they will make a living after they graduate from this program you know, and this program here juxtaposed with engineering and, you know, IT and computer science, it's it's very hard to convince parents to allow their students to major in graphic design. So it can it continues. I reviewed a program out in South Africa at the University of Pretoria, and it was the same thing there. Parents just do not want their kids to go into art because they do not think it's going to be lucrative. You know, it's it's something that we're grappling with. And I don't know, you know, I feel I've made a really good living <laughs> with my interest in art. Um, that's where it started. And I'm very happy with what I'm doing now. Um, the challenging part, you know, is really on the administrative side of things. <laughs> where it gets very political and hard to deal with, but I'm still really happy when I go to do my research, when I'm writing, et cetera. I'm really glad, you know, that I made the choices that I did um, that allowed me to arrive at this destination. Um, you know, I don't think that I'm making as much as an engineer would, but it wasn't about money for me. You know, it, it never really was. But I'm very comfortable now with my salary. I think I'm paid a lot. You know, it's not as high as what my president is making. I'm not making a million a year or more. Um, but I think I'm satisfied. I'm really happy with what I do. Um, selling that to parents still is a very hard thing to do. <laughs> I just, I think we, we're still confronted with that. I don't know that we've really found a solution for the problem. I mean, it's even harder here because we're not known as one of the top art schools. We're not, you know, just a pure art school. You know, when you think about RISD still has that reputation as being the best art school in the world. And that's what we're competing with as well. So it's a very hard thing. So if we do have parents who believe in the arts, many of them are artists themselves and believe in the arts, then they're likely sending their kids to the art schools, you know, the ones that are top ranked. And so there are a lot of challenges. But I do think that 
we need to move away. You know, it's hard because I understand parents wanting their kids to be able to make a living. And I don't know that the arts really um, provides that, you know, and provides the resources that you need to survive. Um, and I think we need to work more on that. But changing this perception that art does not lead to a lucrative career, I think is just wrong. And I do think it needs to change, but it's going to take additional time. Yeah. I, I think also part of it has to come around, you know, to defining what success would mean to the person. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're talking about these being lucrative careers, but we're, we're speaking strictly about salary. Exactly. We're not talking about job security or diversity and inclusion. You know, we're not talking about these other things. Yeah. And going yeah. into all of this, particularly for black folks, we're coming into this uh, on the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder. Uh, of course, getting money and gaining income and gaining wealth is important. But, you know, I think as we all know, once right. we start working, sometimes the check is not enough. You know, there are other factors that, you know, well, just because you get that paycheck, that doesn't mitigate uh, exactly. those other issues that might have to deal with your job. Mm hmm. That is exactly right. That is exactly right. Um, I mean, even just, you know, for me, my decision to go towards art is just I wanted to enjoy my job, enjoy my life. I worked so hard to get to, you know, the college that I went to, et cetera, that I didn't want to be like the lawyers that were around me who were just so unhappy um, and waiting, you know, to start their, start doing what they really want to do and enjoy. But there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, if that is the path you choose to take, then so be it. Um, and I was fully aware that I had a fight ahead in terms of making a living, but I really wanted to just enjoy the work that I do. And I, I absolutely have reached my destination and I'm very happy with that with my choices. What piece of advice has really stuck with you over the years? Mm, so many. Oh boy. That's a hard question to <laughs> answer. What piece, single piece. I've gotten a lot of bad advice that, <laughs> <laughs> that I giggle about, but I don't think I want to share them now. Um, hmm. I think that, I don't know that I've gotten any piece of advice that has stuck in my head all these years, but I've made observations of behaviors that I really, really think are useful in your journey. Um, and two characteristics would be um, humility and resilience. You know, and resilience, the way I'm using it, is all about not giving up and really trying to listen to what, to any sort of criticism that you get, any kind of rejection that you get, to learn from it and be open, humble yourself to it and learn from it. You don't necessarily have to agree with it but you do need to consider it as you move forward and not to let that hold you back. Um, you know, the process that I went through was 
picking research was really hard because the journals, anyone who has been on the peer review, I mean, on the tenure track understands peer review and how brutal, you know, writing an article can be when you get the comments back from the reviewer and it's a rejection for, you know, an article not being published in the journal and you just feel like a complete idiot and you spent like a year and a half on this paper and it's not getting published and you have to, you know, read the criticism and send it out to another journal. You can't just quit or applying to like the NSF and getting rejected year after year after year. You know, I think that's where you really have to humble yourself and be willing to um, review criticism and objectively and to really reflect on it, you know, and if you do, you'll be surprised how much you grow. You know, how how I apply that to my life or I think about, I have this instinct to say, oh, he or she is just racist. You know, <laughs> that's why I didn't get into that conference or that's why I didn't get published or something like that. But over the years, I've tried to not make that the first you know, thing that comes to mind if I get a rejection. You know, you really have to reflect on that experience and try to see it from their perspective in order to learn, right? And realize that, you know, you can do it. Don't give up. I hate to say don't give up, but essentially that's what it's all about. Um, but I think humility and resilience are absolutely important characteristics to, um, and, you know, to have moving through your journey. Where do you see yourself in the next five years from now? Uh, what do you want to be working on? I would like to be in an administrative role of sorts. I think there is a lot to do on the administrative level, and I'm beginning to really enjoy that process. Um, although it's, it's presented so many challenges to me and it can be extraordinarily stressful, but I, I do think that, um, I can bring about change on that level, right? So in five years, I truly hope to be in an administrative role beyond the one that I'm in right now. So the next step up. And I'm not sure what that's going to be yet, but definitely administrative work in academia. Well, Audrey, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Well, I have a website, AudreyGBennett.com. I'm also on academia, so academia.edu. And you can find my papers there. Um, you can find my research via my website, AudreyGBennett.com. And if you go to Google Scholar, you can see the impact of my work. Sounds good. Well, Audrey Bennett, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really liked a lot of what we talked about with respect to design scholarship and, and these larger topics. You know, as design grows and changes, particularly with technology and society, there seems to be less of a focus of looking back 
and studying the history and learning the ethics of why we design things the way we do or why certain things are happening. And I feel like your work is a really integral part in clearing up the confusion that might exist. Uh, and, and also you're, you're giving hope for the future, you know, to know that the things uh, we're discovering and the way society is changing is something that we can design and control. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maurice. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Audrey Bennett and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Audrey and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, MailChimp, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Facebook isn't just one product or one type of design problem. Their work transforms a number of industries from advertising, news and media, local business, video, and messaging. No other company designs at a massive scale like they do. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Now, I know if you're a designer and you heard me talking about apps and bots earlier, you might think, is Glitch for me? And the answer is yes, it is for you. Too many coding tools put up barriers to creativity with a lot of complicated setup and features. Glitch just lets you get started with no hassle at all. So what will you create today? Get started at glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. With different hosting platforms to suit every need, including managed WordPress hosting on all plans, SiteGround will not let you down. Trust me, they've been working with us since 2015 now with hosting, and it's been great. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. First, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and next, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really, really helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings there for Design Podcast, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. 
For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.